You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Josh Shambro is the Chief Resiliency Officer for the City's Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. When we last checked in with him on plans to launch a COVID-19 wastewater study funded by federal CARES money, the city was having trouble getting case information from the state's Department of Health. It finally got some of that data by zip code that it needed, and it has just posted the info on its dashboard, One Oahu. We spoke with Stanbro earlier this morning about the status of the project and what more it needs to fine-tune the research. Department of Health allowed us to get sort of black and white snapshots of what the numbers are and where they are by zip code area. We didn't get the full color version, and uh, we're working with them on an agreement, to uh, sort of a research agreement between the University of Hawaii and Department of Health to get that more granular data that can provide even more insight into how many cases and where the wastewater, you know, sort of gets gathered. But right now, we've got much better information than we had in the beginning uh, of the study, and so much so that we're able to now publicly share that. So that's on your website now. When were you able to start actually going out in the field and testing? When when did this kick off? So we started testing all the way back in, I think it was May. So we started sort of a pilot project with a group called BioBot. Their turnaround times and, and I think the way that they were doing their analysis wasn't on point for, for our conditions here. And so um, the results from the pilot were at best sort of murky. At that point, because of the cost of doing it with mainland folks, we shifted to working in a partnership with UH, which they did a much more detailed analysis on a regular basis for, for a lot less funding. And so we shifted over to UH partnership in June. So we've been collecting samples since June all the way through to today. And in UH at one point, so they started with sort of one one logarithm or analysis and try to play around with it to see if they could get it to be more accurate, accurately detect the COVID virus remnants in the wastewater. And then in August, they switched over to sort of a new and improved version. And so their, their results have been getting more and more accurate. So really there's the June to August period, which was sort of the version 1.0 analysis that UH was doing. And then since sort of mid-late August to today, they've been using a more accurate tool to assess the concentration. And that's what we have up on the website. Where exactly are you retrieving these wastewater samples? So there are 10 sites. There's nine wastewater treatment plants around the island. And so that's where we're taking our samples. So we're not doing it sort of at a neighborhood bowl or sort of sporadically in, in different areas. We're, we're doing it at the actual wastewater treatment plants themselves. There's nine of those, you know, Honouli Uli and Sand Island are the two big ones. That's responsible for about 70% of all wastewater that is treated on island. And then there's several smaller ones. There's Kahuku, there's Kailua. Uh, Laie, Wahiwa, Waianae, Waimanalo. Those ones are spread in smaller um, areas ar- around the island with which m- much fewer homes that are sort of serviced. We're also doing a little, we're doing sampling on a regular basis at Waikiki just to sort of track what uh, the numbers are in Waikiki um, as tourism re- reopened. And then all of those samples are analyzed at local labs, correct? They're all analyzed at UH, actually. So the the university has the engineering department. Dr. Yan at uh, engineering has been an amazing partner for us. They've basically been taking in the samples on a weekly basis since June and working with his team. And in fact, he's he's looking to take the results of this and, and turn it into a, um, a, a paper, a peer-reviewed paper, to really dig into what the correlations are between COVID in wastewater and COVID case counts, as we see in, in real time. When we last talked, there were a number of universities across the mainland that were using the wastewater test to be able to manage and, uh, I think, prevent outbreaks, which was fascinating because they were, you know, uh, opening up, I think, manholes in, uh, you know, nearby the, the dormitories on campuses. So, you know, that was fascinating. Yeah, and that's where we're looking to go, actually. The large population sort of trends that we are monitoring with this wastewater project really are just a security blanket to know that we're not missing something in the larger case counts. You know, if, it, if we saw a huge deviation start to spread in the, in, the, in the trend around what, you know, we're seeing in wastewater versus what we're seeing, it would be an, an area of concern. So it gives us a sense of, you know, are we getting this right? As we see 49 states in the, in the country now 
kind of raising at exponential rates in terms of the COVID count. We, we want to make sure that the number that we're seeing here is actually, you know, this, this leveling is, is true. And, it's, and it, that's, that's a fact. That's happening. And, and wastewater trends um, help us do that. That said, the whole idea behind wastewater analysis is really best utilized at these smaller levels. So say a nursing home, a university dorm, a hospital, you know, I mean, where there's a concentrated area of people that are the same day in and day out, you can monitor the wastewater there and see if you get a single case or a second case and then go in and do regular testing. So it's a way to monitor a smaller population. And UH is actually looking at doing that for their dorms um, based on the success of the model that we've created here. This is really challenging our best minds, right? Our technology people, our engineers, just to say, you know, we have this crisis. How can we apply maybe the science and the technology that we already have to create solutions and help us manage this situation? When you have a brand new problem that's unprecedented, you need people that are going to throw everything at it and see what sticks. Um, um, And that's, you know, what we've done with this is this is New technology, we, you know, we, we weren't sure how well it would work in the beginning, but, you know, we wanted to see what could help us in any way, shape, or form keep an eye on the virus and, and keep our population safe here. And so we were really, you know, pleased that the scientists at UH stepped up and helped us with this process and, and, and helped us at a, um, you know, <laughs> at a reduced price that we could afford to use some CARES money um, to keep an eye on the wastewater and just have some assurance that the um, the daily testing numbers that we're seeing um, really truly reflect what, what is happening out there in the population. So what else do you need from the Department of Health? What are the specifics in those cases that would help uh, produce better results? So what it would really help is at the small plant level. You know, you have several hundred thousand homes that, you know, come into Sand Island. But in some of the smaller areas, like Kahuku or Laie or Waimanalo, you have less homes, and so there's less cases in those areas. So right now, what Department of Health is giving us is sort of rounded numbers, right? So it'll be like 0 through 10 or 10 through 15. It doesn't say the specific amount um, of cases per zip code. That level of detail would be really helpful to then know you know, what's the accuracy of this in these smaller areas um, uh, around the island? Because then you can actually dial in the exact number of cases reported in a week to the concentration that you're seeing in those those small sort of flow wastewater areas. That would really help improve the model to, to see how accurate it is. Can we dial the analysis even, even more to get a, a more accurate um, sort of reading? Um, but that said, you know, the, the rounded numbers that we've been provided um, that, they, that they didn't have a, a concern around privacy have really helped us get better at this. Um, and, you know, so f- sort of for a large population trend, it's accurate enough, uh, we believe, at this point to um, you know, keep doing it um, and then just hope that that research agreement can be signed between UH and Department of Health to get the, the more uh, granular data soon. I know there's the concern also about the, the margin of error, uh, but it would seem like, you know, if you can get a good handle on those numbers. And, and I know, you know, realizing that there's a lag time generally because DOH wants to verify and confirm, you know, because we, we've watched over the past year, right, how they said, oh, no, we've got to change this. Oh, there's an error where or we move the numbers around a little bit. But I would think if, you know, you're just looking broadly that those things are factored in. Yeah, and I mean, you can admit, look at the election that's just happened, right? You can do a recount. It's only going to change, a, you know, a tiny percentage of, of votes, you know. Um, and that's the same with going back and looking at the numbers of the case counts. It's only going to change a couple here or there, move them from one zip code to another. What you really want is that daily snapshot of what number of cases happened in what zip codes every day and then correlate that to the real-time wastewater, um, you know, test. If you go back and correct a case here or there, that is, that's not going to make a difference um, in the, the sort of overall trend. This is really, you know, this is not a precision science. This is a trend analysis um, and, and just looking to essentially confirm the overall um, numbers and, and space and just make sure we're not, you know, 
missing something uh, out there. This is not meant to predict the number of cases, uh, you know, in, in other places. In fact, you know, that was one of the things that nationally, um, you know, folks thought in the beginning is that by testing wastewater, you could actually see the sort of potential number of cases out there ahead of time. So there were some there were some claims that you know you could see a week uh, ahead of time the number of cases before they came in. We think now that that was a result of really slow turnaround test times for the COVID patients, right? So if you had a 24-hour turnaround on a COVID test, it would actually line up with what you were seeing in wastewater as well. It was just that it was taking so long to um, process the PCR tests and get the results back that it looked like it was. Uh, predicting, you know, a week in advance. We, we think at, at best, Dr. Yan is, is saying that he thinks at best it's about uh, a two-day, um, you know, uh, prediction um, ahead of time and, and maybe even less now that we're getting faster test turnaround times. And what's your hope that you can cut through this red tape and, and get this uh contract sealed? You know, I, I think with, with the new Department of Health leadership over there, they really are trying. They, they are, um, you know, this is one of those things that they've given us 90% of what we need. The last 10% sort of requires a more detailed sort of privacy contract with just researchers. And it's just not at the top of the, the pile. I mean, during a pandemic and a crisis, we know that their number one concern has got to be doing contact tracing, following up folks with do have COVID, uh, we get that, but you know, it, we think they're going to get to it as time allows, and hopefully, it's you know here before the before the end of the year when our CARES funding runs out, so that we can at least go take a look and, and see how it performed over time. You've been hearing from the city's chief resilience officer, Josh Dambro, who spoke with us earlier this morning. For links to the COVID wastewater info, head to our website. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with the Homa Shop offering a selection of art-inspired items. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions. Also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by November 30th. You know, it's been about three months since the state kicked off a program to help families with rent and mortgage payments. Several counties offer similar CARES money rent relief programs. We checked in with Denise Asiri Matsubara, Executive Director of the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation. The state's latest numbers show that it's approved some $47 million in applications and has actually dispersed some $30.7 million in checks. Duplicate applications have added to the processing delays as well as the reluctance of some landlords to provide tax information to those processing the applications. We're entering our 12th week of the program, and it's been nonstop, go, go, go. We've helped about 7,100, roughly 7,100 households. So we're making progress. We're, we're making progress. I mean, they are, they are going, kicking it as best as they can. As, and you're going to recall this, this program was a heavy lift for us, right? We're, we're the agency whose core mission is to finance and develop large-scale affordable housing projects. So we had to create a brand new program from scratch in a very short amount of time for rent subsidy, right? So very different. It's a shift. It was a very heavy lift. Um, the legislature had asked us for help. You know, we gladly want to help the community and we want to be good partners with the legislature, but obviously far away from our core. Um, and then $100 million, right? That's a staggering amount of money. Um, and it's difficult to spend down re responsibly in an accountable way in a short amount of time. And especially when you're dealing with individual $1,500, $2,000 checks at a time. 
Well, the first of the month is just around the corner. And so I know uh, people are anxious uh, to see those checks. Uh, you had a couple of nonprofits that were helping you dole out the money. And I think when we first talked, I think they had actually sent out checks pretty quick. So the, the two nonprofits that are administering the program are Catholic Charities Hawaii and Aloha United Way. Do you have a handle on, you know, how things have been going uh, for those who have applied, let's say, for the neighbor islands? So, yeah, we'll get to the neighbor islands in a minute, but a couple of the the initiatives that the nonprofits had to do was they really had to staff up, and then for Catholic Charities, space was becoming an issue, so we had to set up an off-site uh, support processing center for them where they have uh, fully taken advantage of and have staffed up. So for the neighbor islands, roughly I can tell you the numbers are running with Oahu, of course, uh, having the most applications, but Maui. Maui has about 16% of the approved applications with about 1,700 applications approved uh, for payment and be running down to Hawaii County with the smallest amount of 400, close to 500 applications or 4.7% of the total applications approved. And that stands to reason because Hawaii County and the sitting county of Honolulu had their own separate rent relief programs, right? Yeah, so talk about that. There was a concern that you didn't want people to double dip. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the primary reasons for the delays is now this this check for duplication, especially because two of the counties have very similar programs going on at the same time. And the number of duplicate applications, according to the nonprofits, have been actually a lot larger than anticipated, sometimes up to 30, a little bit past 30%. And the thing with these checks, you know, you have the renters that are making the ask, but those checks go directly to the landlords, and the landlords have to be able to provide information like tax returns, right? That is correct. So as far as delays go, that is another primary source of delay. The nonprofits, both Catholic Charities and Aloha United Way, have reported difficulty in getting landlords to respond or participate in the program. And there seems to be some reluctancy to provide the required tax information. Well, what do you think is happening there? You know, I, I, I don't want to comment on there, but that I can just tell you that that's, that appears to be one of the primary uh, reasons, according to the nonprofits, that is a cause for some hesitation and some of the reluctancy in participating, it's just the unwillingness to provide the required uh, tax information. Is the concern that maybe they weren't declaring some of this income on their taxes? I don't want to comment and make an assumption, but I can just tell you that just the requirement of the tax information and finding that a good percentage of the landlords are actually private individual landlords, that has been you know, the source of this delay. I'm trying to figure out, they're the ones that get the check. So, you know, why wouldn't you be forthcoming with some of this info? Yes, a source of the concern and a source of just really the surprise being experienced by both nonprofits is, is just the degree and the, the numbers of landlords that have been unwilling to respond or participate. But then the poor renter, you know, is concerned about that big bill that exactly. he or she owes the landlord, and if uh, that person is unemployed, where are you going to get the money? Exactly. And so we're hoping that the landlords and the tenants will come together you know, somehow, and then we, we also pay for mediation services, so we're hoping that some of them take, take advantage of that. Is there anything else that uh, you want to share just with our listeners, if there is somebody out there that's waiting? You know, if we could provide some clarity and perspective. First, you know, the numbers that are out there, beginning with the $100 million for the program, it's really $84 because that's what was carved out by the nonprofits for direct assistance. The balance, you know, has to cover their cost to administer the program. And then the number of applications um, is another focal point, and we really just want to concentrate on the numbers left to go to the finish line. And right now, you know, we've been working closely with Joe Tokuda of the Hawaii Data Collaborative, and it's determined that there's about roughly 6,000 applications left to go in the next four weeks. So, you know, this is all contingent on two key variables, the rate 
of processing by the two nonprofits and the average check amount being disbursed. So those are the two key variables, and that's what's going to determine how fast and when we get to the finish line. You know, to the folks uh, that are still waiting for assistance, we really, really appreciate your patience. Anyone that wants to know the status of their applications can do so online by visiting either the Catholic Charities Hawaii or Aloha United uh, Way website at auw.org or catholiccharitieshawaii.org. And they have a simple status check uh, where folks can, can check you know, where their application is at. What we want to convey to the people of Hawaii is that many of us here and at the partner agencies have friends and families that are affected by the COVID pandemic in terms of their employment. And so a lot of us have a deep commitment and all the staff here at HHFDC as well as partner agencies are giving their heart and soul to this program and will continue to do everything they can to help the community. Um, We really wish we could get the money out faster, but it takes time to do so in a responsible fashion. So we just thank everyone for their patience. For those landlords out there, we really urge you to respond when you get a call or you get an email from Catholic Charities or Aloha United Way. They're reaching out to you. Please pick up the phone or respond to their their email, they're trying to help you. And all they're trying to do is get the missing information so that they can process and get payments cut. Please respond. Uh, Know that we're working hard. We're going to do everything we can uh, to help the community. That was Denise Aseri Matsubaro, Director of the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation. The state says to date its mortgage program has helped more than 400 homeowners across the state. As COVID-19 rates rise across the mainland, some people are moving to Hawaii to escape the virus. But will they stay here? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So, uh, you know, we were hearing anecdotally from realtors that, you know, the luxury home sales were picking up. Uh, you know, what, what were we able to, to find? Luxury home sales are picking up. I spoke with a real estate broker on the on uh, Maui who said, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, her business was basically stagnant. And then all of a sudden, things really started to pick up in July. Uh, she said it all started for her, this kind of deluge of, of spontaneous real estate purchases in Hawaii uh, with a phone call from a a couple in Silicon Valley, they really wanted to spend the summer on Maui, but the coronavirus had shuttered most hotels, and she ended up selling them on a $14.5 million property. That was just the start of, of, of many stories like this for her. That's so interesting. You know, I guess the, yeah, rent, but then they actually plunk money down to buy. Yeah, and what, what I found is that, you know, people are coming to Hawaii for a lot of reasons. Of course, the scenery, the climate. Um, the low virus rates is what's really driving this and the fact that there is an abundance of outdoor activities year-round in Hawaii and a lot of other places just don't have that. Uh, And another draw is that there are these smaller private schools that are offering in-person classroom learning for students and in some states that's really hard to come by. So folks who are trying to make their pandemic experience a little uh, brighter a little bit more normal are coming to Hawaii for all of these things, enrolling their kids in schools that do have this uh, in-person learning, giving their kids kind of a quasi-normal uh, academic experience. So what other hard data do we have besides like the real estate numbers? Yeah, so census data will really tell us, uh, give us the best picture of what's happening with this migration of, of residents in and out of the state. And that won't be available for some time. But what we do have is 
kind of a, a preliminary snapshot from the Hawaii Tourism Authority. And they have a voluntary survey that folks who are flying in can uh, volunteer if they are intended new residents. And looking at that data, we're seeing that over the pandemic period overall, there's actually been fewer new residents moving to Hawaii. And that's uh, largely because there was just such a dramatic drop in the number of people of all kinds coming to the islands in March, April, May. But what we do see is if you look at the period from August 1st to November 15th, the daily number of intended new residents increased about 20% um, to a little more than 180 people per day. So that's 180 people on average per day are moving here now during this time. Whereas, you know, in 2019, that number was more uh, around 150 people per day. So it's, it's, a, it's a significant increase. But again, if you're looking at the pandemic from March, we, we're still having a, an overall a decrease in people coming. So we'll just have to see if these folks actually uh, who are planning to be just part-timers all of a sudden uh, become maybe full-time residents. Um, but w- what about the local folks? I mean, how are they viewing this influx of people? You know, I think everybody has seen the out-of-state license plates and, and just new folks in town, home sales uh, going like crazy. I think, you know, there are a couple of different ways local residents are looking at this. I think some people see um, folks coming in, you know, as a threat. There's this idea of, of being replaced, you know, as Hawaii becomes even more, di- as it's even more difficult for folks to, to get by here with this exorbitant cost of living and now everything that's happening with the economy. There's this fear that folks who you know, have access to these jobs that allow them to work remotely and have these steadier, higher paychecks, that they're going to come in and, and replace them. Um, but we also see people who really see this as an opportunity uh, to reverse the brain drain, to kind of shore up the, the state's um, kind of devastated tax revenue and to pump money into the local economy. So, so there's a couple ways to look at this. And I think the big question is, are these going to really stay? Um, there's so much uncertainty with the pandemic. And I think, you know, these are intended new residents, but, but whether or not they really um, become a part of our local community for the long run is kind of yet to be seen. Yeah, and hopefully our local folks don't all move away. But thanks so much, Brittany. Thank you. We've been talking to reporter Brittany Light for our reality check today. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is Sandy Tsukiyama, host of Brazilian Experience on HPR1, every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. I bring the best in bossa nova, favela funk, and all the colors in between from our largest neighbor in South America. But what if you miss a show? Like many of our music programs, you can stream Brazilian Experience on demand. Just head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Loyal listeners may know Bert Lum as longtime host of Bite Marks Cafe, an HPR program on all things techie. But his day job is a strategy officer for the Hawaii Broadband Initiative for the State Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. It just released a broadband report, a kind of roadmap for Hawaii to tackle the digital divide. Bert Lum explains it this way. One of the things that doesn't get really appreciated is the fact that when people look at it from a really high level, I mean, Hawaii is pretty well connected. I mean, we have carriers like Hawaiian Telecom and we have Charter and and they provide, for the most part, the lion's share of of Internet access for people in Hawaii. But what, what COVID has really brought light is the fact that there are many in our community that don't have the benefit of that kind of connection. And and these could be people in rural communities, or it could be Native Hawaii communities, it could be 
people that are disenfranchised. It could be people that are uh, low income and can't afford it. So the population was really forced to stay at home, whether it be for work or education. Then you pretty much had to rely uh, 100% on getting, you know, getting connected to anything through the fact that you had to do it through the internet. So. What happens is that because of COVID and bringing the attention to this this sort of digital divide, you really start to see the the uh, kind of the kink, you know, in the armor. And what what I think people now realize is that you cannot just simply rely on the commercial sector to deliver internet access because, you know, they will look at the the communities that have the best return on the investment. So. It's not a matter of uh, antiquated systems. It's more an issue of, of uh, you know, disparity and, and ec- you know, equity. So how do you explain to people what broadband is if they don't understand it? Simply speaking, broadband is all of our ability to connect to the Internet or access to services, whether it be for, you know, distance learning or telehealth or remote work or even uh, civic engagement or even uh, maintaining your social connections. It's, it's really connecting to the broader Internet with a service that is capable of a performance level that is adequate in terms of delivering the kind of applications that you expect to receive. It's not just the question of infrastructure. And so what we've tried to do in the plan, as well as the narrative around broadband is really kind of three pillars. Uh, We talk about access, which is kind of the infrastructure. Uh, We also talk about literacy and how you can actually use the kind of tools that would best position you to, you know, kind of thrive on the uh, digital economy. Uh, And the third one is this idea of of livelihood uh, being that everything that we do, whether it's you know, distance learning, you know, doing the Zoom calls, uh, doing a telehealth uh, consultation, or even doing remote work. That livelihood piece, uh, those are all, that's the three pillars that really uh, ensure that, you know, we, Hawaii, can be um, not only competitive, but thrive, you know, in the digital economy. So that's, that's, it's more than just, you know, connect me up to the Internet. It's all about can I, can I use the tools? Can I use my computer? Can I access the application? And how do I um, bring how do I bring everybody up to that level so that we all can benefit? You know, I, I guess I'm thinking of kind of what we saw with uh, what happened. Part of this plan talks about what getting the cable landing infrastructure right for for fiber optic cables. The the thing with connectivity is that there are many many pieces to the puzzle. So. It's not just like one thing, and then you'll solve you know, the entire broadband problem, right? You got you got everything from how does the Trans-Pacific fiber cables actually land in Hawaii, and once they land in Hawaii, how do you distribute the broadband access from that that Trans-Pacific fiber to the rest of the neighbor islands? And that's something that we sometimes refer to as the inter inter-island fiber. And then once you once you get to the island itself, then you have to connect between the where the fiber comes up from, you know, under the water and onto the land. And how do you get what we call terrestrial fiber distributed through communities? Then you are looking at how do you get the companies like you know the Hawaiian Telecoms or the the charters to to get the actual physical infrastructure to your home. And, and at your home, it could be it could be fiber, it could be twisted pair, it could be coax, uh, it could even be wireless solutions like uh, uh, 4G uh, uh, cell service. So there's a number of ways to actually get to your home or your business or your device. So it's not just one infrastructure thing. There's a lot of pieces of that infrastructure puzzle uh, involved in connectivity. So we're in a situation now where we've got a budget crisis because of this pandemic. So where do we get the money to build our systems? Uh, that's the uh, that's the million-dollar question. So 
as I mentioned, there's a lot of different players that are involved. So the Trans-Pacific Fiber folks, they usually raise money from uh, private investors. Uh, then you have the uh, commercial sector folks who also raise private sector money for, you know, for their infrastructure builds. Then you have some of the things that, you know, in, in terms of the plan and, and, and what we were looking at is there were some things that the government could do to help lower the barrier for connectivity to Hawaii. And, and some of that would be spent in the form of these cable landing infrastructure in order to access the island to come from under the water onto the land. And that cable landing infrastructure, you can think of it like an airport or, or even a highway, right? I mean, in order for cars to get from point A to point B, they, they need to go on a road. Or for an airline to, to land in Hawaii, they need to have a um, an airport. Well, same thing with uh, Trans-Pacific Fiber or even inter-island fiber. You need some place you can land. And, and that's where the government could invest in some money to build that infrastructure to help lower the barrier. And the barrier includes things like, you know, acquisition of land. Uh, it could be permitting. Uh, it could be some of the engineering work to, uh, you know, to, to uh, get onto the land. It's, it's the uh, survey that needs to be done. That, a lot of that could be done so that once the project is ready to come to Hawaii, uh, that, that infrastructure is already there. So it's, it's much like, you know, the analogy is the, uh, the, the airline. So, you know, if, if all you had in Hawaii was uh, like a Dillingham airfield, you know, some of the big carriers would, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily land there. Uh, but if you were to invest in an airport, in like, a, like an, you know, international airport where you have multiple terminals and you can accommodate hangars for these large planes, then, then the uh, airlines would land there. And then you... You basically work it out so that the airlines are are part of the uh, you know the business model to take advantage of your airport. Right, but build it and they will come. Don't build it <laughs> and they won't come. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Did the report uh, identify areas throughout the state that are severely lacking that we really need to put resources you know into this into up into upgrades? There's communities that are in rural areas that don't typically have the kind of fiber optic. Uh, infrastructure. And, and there's ways of, of actually funding that. So there's been several federal programs that uh, enable companies like Hawaiian Telecom to actually uh, help to fund some of the fiber deployment. So there's a program called the uh, Connect America Fund. And then uh, there's also something called the um, Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. And and these are areas um, that... that uh, organizations like the FCC recognize as being underserved. And so companies like the Hawaiian Telecom or, or Charter could apply, and, and if they were able to get monies uh, from those programs, could deploy fiber. So uh, as a result of you know, the work that they do, as well as especially now during the pandemic where, again, everybody needs to have connectivity, uh, these programs become much more, much more, uh, important and and it it, it it offers a way of, of solving that problem of connectivity. So there's a lot more attention in how we Hawaii can get access to these kinds of programs because realizing that the state isn't going to go ahead and fund all those programs. So federal government is is actually making some of these infrastructure programs available so that uh, the telecom companies can actually go out and deploy fiber. Right, so there are initiatives that we can tap, take advantage of. You know, we all recognize that there's going to be limited funds from the state because of our just our revenue shortfalls and economic condition that we're in. So we have to be very uh, creative and, and look at ways of leveraging federal resources as well as looking at potential philanthropic funds for some of the build-outs in, in rural uh, and uh, Native Hawaiian communities. That was Bert Lom, the state strategy officer for the Hawaii Broadband Initiative. We were talking about a just-released report about how we need to narrow the digital divide, particularly in light of lessons learned from our health and economic crisis.
This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now turn to this week's Manu Minute. UH Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a native thrush found only in Big Island rainforest. The Oma'o, or Hawaiian thrush, is found only in the native rainforests of the Big Island. It's a mostly gray and brown robin-like bird that loves to eat fruit from a variety of native trees and shrubs and plays a big role in helping disperse the seeds of these species throughout the forest. Oma'o have one of the loudest and most recognizable songs of any Hawaiian forest bird. They have a huge repertoire of songs, and every individual sings differently. All the Hawaiian Islands used to have their own species of thrush, but unfortunately Kauai is the only other one where they've not yet gone extinct. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. And Hawaii, Hawaii Public Radio's newest feature, Manu Minute, is now a weekly podcast. Hear the beautiful sounds of island songbirds and find out why many are threatened by their changing environment. Subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or through your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. You know, we introduced you to a new book yesterday. The Value of Hawaii 3, Hulihia, The Turning, is a new collection of essays on the future of life in the islands. They're meant to spur discussions on, dis- on topics that Hawaii needs to address Noelani Goodyear Kaupua is one of the editors of the book and chair of the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Department of Political Science. She spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about the essay that she wrote for the book, Discussing Independence. The title of, of my contribution to the volume is Kuokoa Independence. And, um, you know, we're looking toward La Kuokoa, which is Hawaiian Independence Day in so November 28th. So Laku Okoa is a day that remembers the historical um, recognition by important powers of the world recognizing Hawaii's independence as a country, as an equal in terms of sovereignty with countries like England and France and the U.S. So my piece is both trying to introduce the book and introduce the theme of hulihia and how this moment of hulihia is really giving us an opportunity to just rethink where we're at. But the other thing that I try to get at is in the piece is for us to think about what it could mean for Hawaii to be independent once again, both politically independent, but the collection as a whole is really also thinking together about how to generate more economic independence, you know, how to um, not only exert our independence as a, as a country, but as communities, you know, at the community level as well, no matter what the political status is in terms of our relationship with um, the U.S. or any other imperial power. So it just this moment of the pandemic, Um, and of climate changing and global uprising and support of the value of black lives, you know, really has given us this moment to see the fragility of the various systems that we live within currently. And so one of the things that I say in that piece is that no matter how we feel about the U.S. occupation of Hawaii, about Hawaii's relationship with the United States, we need to consider the long-term future that these islands will at some point be independent again. And even though many, many people take for granted that Hawaii 
is the quote-unquote 50th state, we know from looking at the long view of history that empires do not last forever. And particularly when we're thinking about the kinds of global-level shifts that we are seeing already in the world today, how can we be prepared for that? You know, whether whether that happens or not, how can we be prepared so that our communities are as resilient as possible to be thriving and healthy under whatever political regime we find ourselves? So the that piece that I contributed is really just proposing something both quite straightforward and simple, and but also infinitely complex, which is that we need to start talking about Hawaiian political independence as a possible future. Do you think this is something that we'll see in our lifetimes, or is there someone who's already born that will be able to see Hawaiian political independence before they pass away? So I can't predict the future about when this will happen, but what I can say is that there have been, again, in the long view of human history, there is no empire that has lasted forever right? The Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, various incredibly powerful societies have the British Empire, right, which at one point the sun never set on the British Empire, um, have all at some point receded in some way. And we have to, it behooves us as a community, whether, whether you would like that or not, whether you would think that was a great thing or a horrible thing, it's important for us to think about and consider that as a, as a real possibility that we should prepare for in some way. Yeah, even if it's just talking about how would we deal with that, right? We have conversations when, we, when it comes to thinking about agriculture, for example. What would happen if ships stopped coming and we had to suddenly produce more food for ourselves or You know, what if as climate is changing, we have to make this massive shift in our source of energy? You know, we're we're just talking about a a different sector or or a different aspect of our life, which is, is politics. And so I think whether you think it's a it could be a good thing or not, it it's necessary for us to actually consider that possibility. I mean, look, there were all of these people, right? just prior to the election, who are talking about what if there's a civil war in the United States that comes out of this deep, deep division that still remains on the U.S. continent, how would that impact Hawaii? You know, that's the kind of thing that I'm, that I'm talking about. We don't, we don't want that, right? I don't, I don't want the U.S. to be in the midst of a huge civil war. But if that were to happen, how would we deal with it? You know, how would we continue to take care of ourselves? Would we also be polarized to that to that point? I'd like to think that in Hawaii we have very different kinds of values. And for me, seeing the way that some of the political conflict has played out in the U.S. and really the, the very kind of overt white supremacy that we've seen rise in the last four years, um, you know, I'd, I would like to think that Hawaii and the values that we have here would always protect us or would would keep us, that we would want to protect those values that we share that make our community strong, that we take care of one another, that we look across differences, that we have families that come from various kinds of backgrounds. You know, what if things got to the point on the U.S. continent where it was so polarized that people couldn't get beyond that? So those are the kinds of questions that, you know, I'm sure it will. I mean, the the whole theme of hulihia is that it's not meant to be comfortable, right? Hulihia are explosive, incredibly transformative events. And so my piece isn't meant to be comforting or it's meant to be provocative of, of discussion. And if those discussions are um, explosive and as long as they are vigorous and they're grounded in, you know, fact and, and research and those kinds of things, I think it's, it's 
can be positive. That was Noelani Goodyear Kaopua, editor of the book, The Value of Hawaii 3, talking about Hawaiian independence, a day which is being marked this Saturday. We do have to go now, but, you know, we're going to be taking a break for Thanksgiving, and we hope that you have a safe holiday and do your best to keep your distance, wear your mask, and wash your hands. What are you grateful for this season? Your family, your job, how about your health? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation, and our email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online. Just look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Stay positive. Test negative.